On today's episode of Tell Me What You Know, we start the show off with a little porn talk. During my light research, we verified that people have been horny forever, dating all the way back to the Paleolithic times. We'll take a ride through porn history from millions of years ago through the golden age of porn in the late 1900s to today's booming porn industry. Learn about top earners and get some fast facts in a segment called Porn by the Numbers. Better go ahead and open up that incognito browser window. And then we're going to talk about feng shui, ancient China's practice of arranging a town, village, or your home to maximize your good energy, what they call qi. We'll look at the various schools of thought about how to maximize feng shui, tell you about how to arrange your bed so you can have a happy and successful life, and talk about how some big companies have factored in feng shui principles to promote good vibes. We've arranged this episode to promote calmness and productivity. Welcome to Tell Me What You Know. What is happening, everybody? Today is Thursday, July 30th. This is episode 14 of season two of Tell Me What You Know. How you doing up there, Michael? Oh, doing well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think we're in like our 30th day of 90, 90 degree plus heat. So I just feel huh. like it has been really hot. How's it down in North Carolina? Yeah, it's it's warm. Uh I haven't been outside much, to be honest. I just got oh, really yeah. hot in my house. Um, yeah, no, it sucks. Uh, but being in the house all the time, doing a lot of Twitter scrolling. Yeah. And is there anything worse? Like, are there, are there any more nefarious, apathetic companies than internet service providers? No, I mean, it's a complete monopoly. They don't care oh, did about you. Did you see Spectrum? Spectrum was had like coast to coast outages last night, and was were pretty much silent on the whole thing. Really. Yeah, I mean, I was like, the the heat map looked like it was like a spread of a plague. Basically, it was like the entire country was out. I thought it was the end, but I did get some pretty good uh, laughs. I was I was scrolling through the Ask Spectrum feed to try and uh, see if they were going to say anything about it, and some somebody wrote that that Ford guy underscore fourteen wrote. I was watching Gianna Michaels, and right at the good part, the internet shuts off. And <laughs> poor Renee replied. We're, we were in the middle of a movie, too. Uh, if you don't know why that's funny, you probably don't know who Gianna Michaels is, but there's a good chance you'll learn about Gianna Michaels later in the show, oh. not to give away anything. Yeah, but, that, uh, that is a good one. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what's, uh, let's, what did you prepared for a topic today? All right, let's talk about it. Yeah. Michael, so this is something I, I can only speak for myself. I have a lot of experience with. I'm sure that most people do. But tell me what you know about porn. Oh, uh, yeah. Let me, <laughs> let me decide how open I want to be here. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, I've, when, I've, 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 I know a little bit, but I'm not. I would, I would, I would not say I'm like a. Um, a I mean, you were a teenager with internet. Of yeah. You know a little yeah, bit. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's just break it down, and I'll start this off like I started in most of my term papers. Wikipedia defines porn as the portrayal of a sexual subject matter for the exclusive purpose of sexual arousal. Uh, this can obviously be magazines, uh, animation, erotic writings, film or video, uh, and even video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does not include live exhibitions, strip tees, like going to a strip club or a uh, you know erotic dance bar or anything like that. Uh, and, and one of the most famous, I think one of the most used quotes, I know it when I see it 
It dates back to uh, a 1964 Supreme Court Supreme Court obscenity case, mm-hmm. where Associate Justice Potter Stewart uh, wrote that hardcore they were, they were trying to decide whether something was obscene or not or hardcore pornography. And Justice Stewart said, you know, hardcore pornography is hard to define, but I know it when I see it. It's a pretty accurate description, I think. Uh, maybe the lines are a little blurred now about what is porn and what is not. I think you can think of like maybe is some erotica porn or is that more like oh this is actually art, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Right. Yeah, like uh, a, a a naked body in a kind of way like a uh, like a sculpture or something was from Yeah, or like Playboy for example. I wouldn't consider Playboy porn necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's it's on the When line. you compare it to like other magazines like Hustler or Penthouse for sure not. Right, right. All right. Anyway, let's get into the history. The earliest depictions of uh, sexual nature have existed since prehistoric times. Talking like caveman porn, right? <laughs> <laughs> Their figurines have been found from the Paleolithic era, which is, you know, two and a half million years ago. Uh, artifacts have been found in ancient Mesopotamia depicting explicit heterosexual sex. There have been glyphs that have been, you know, found from the Sumerian early dynastic period, which is 2900 to 2350 BC. These frequently showed images of people getting it on missionary style. There are sketches of people doing it. Uh, that have been found on pottery fragments and in graffiti from ancient Egypt. We get a little more contemporary. Uh, in 1748, uh, a novel called Fanny Hill was, was written. It was considered one of the first original English prose pornography hmm. and the first erotic novel. Uh, it was also titled Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure, and it was one of the most prosecuted and banned books in history as well. So that was in 1748. Uh, in the 1800s, when th- they were doing the excavation of Pompeii, they found a lot of Roman erotic art. Uh, of course, with the invention of photography in the early 1800s, there was the invention of dick pics and everything like that as well. Mm-hmm. So tons of <laughs> P- people are horny, man. I mean, like as soon as something comes out, it's like, how can we make this u- useful for, for the porn industry? Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like that's the driver of the innovation. Right. Exactly. In some ways. <laughs> Like, oh, what do we need this camera for? Well, we can take a picture of your dick. <laughs> oh, I, I get know. it. You two oh, do I it. Get it. We'll, we'll, we'll take a picture of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in 1857, the English Obscene Publications Act it was the first law criminalizing porn. The American equivalent was the Comstock Act in 1873, and it made the sale of obscene material a statutory offense. Uh, the photos could be confiscated and destroyed. I'm not sure what kind of uh, like fine or jail time this carried, mm-hmm. but it was definitely illegal and illicit. Um, obviously, like we just mentioned, pornographic film production began pretty much immediately after the invention of the motion picture in 1895. There were uh, two French pioneers, Eugene Pirot and Albert Kirchner. Kirchner directed Pirot's first film. Uh, the trade name was Lair, and the film name was Le Coucher de la Marie. Mm. which translates to The Bride's Sunset. Oh. And it was a woman doing a striptease. Nice. Uh, I did try to look it up for research purposes. I could not find it. I think it's on YouTube, so I'm not sure it's like exact. It's not where I was looking, so. But I I, uh, I don't think it's too graphic. Um, yeah, I bet their versions of hardcore were not up to uh, our version was, of hard, hardcore now. She She showed her ankles. <laughs> Uh, production and distribution of pornographic films was illegal up until 1969 when Denmark became the first country to abolish censorship. Uh, obviously, after this, there was an explosion in investment. Um, 
1984, you have the golden age of porn. Uh, Andy Warhol released Blue Movie. It was the first adult erotic film to receive wide theatrical release in the United States. Uh, it was a seminal film in the golden age of porn. Uh, and apparently it was a major influence of Last Tango in Paris starring Marlon Brando, hmm. which also drew some controversy, I believe, as well. Then you got the introduction of home video and internet. Uh, so data from 2015 shows a, a major increase in viewing of porn over the last few decades due to growth of the internet. No shit. Obviously. <laughs> uh, and then a company called MindGeek. Do you know who that is? I've heard of them. I didn't know this, but they're apparently a porn monopoly. So they acquired sites like Pornhub, YouPorn, RedTube. Oh. Uh, and I guess they just, I mean, they, they have a pretty big, they've cornered the market pretty hard there, I think. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit quickly about uh, some economics, porn industry economics. So uh, I don't really have much information before 1970, but I saw that there was a federal study in 1970 that estimated the total retail value of hardcore porn in the United States was no more than $10 million. Yeah, right. And so we'll start, well, we'll start there and you'll just see how fast this explodes. In 1998, a report online, uh, a report on online adult content estimated $750 million to $1 billion in annual revenue. Studies three years later in 2001 put the total between 2.6 and 3.9 billion. And as of 2014, the porn industry brings in roughly $13 billion a year in the United States. Wow. That's $3,075 being spent on porn every second and a new video being produced every 39 minutes. Wow. And that was 2014. So I would imagine it's even bigger now, especially with numbers spiking in the last six months. Everyone's just staying home. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, it's, it, I mean, it's gargantuan, really. It I really mean, is. And especially when you think about, um, it can't be that large in terms of, the actual participants in the in the industry like i'm sure there are you know a lot of quote-unquote porn stars but i guess there's right maybe the internet's opened up a lot more amateur people coming into it for sure yeah. tons of home video type stuff yeah uh, anybody can i mean cameras are super accessible uploading any kind of data is very accessible so there you go yeah um Geographically, the San Fernando Valley has been the hotbed of porn production since the 70s. It's you know near LA. Tons of uh, adult film actors and actresses have set up shop there, and that's where they shoot a lot of the sort of a lot of the production for for the porn industry. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, porn played a really big part in the format wars, both between VHS versus Betamax, as well as Blu-ray versus HD DVD. <laughs> yeah. So I guess they were like, okay, they almost they almost had like a not a deciding vote, but they definitely weighed heavily on which one of those, you know, which won those those wars. Right. Um you mentioned some, you know, porn stars. So we'll just jump into I found a list of the top 14 earners. Do you want to start from the top or the bottom? Uh the bottom. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Bottom meaning the lowest earners, I guess. Yes. Okay. So we have at number 14, Sasha Gray, uh, maybe a name that some are, are familiar with. She, even if you don't watch porn and maybe you watched Entourage, she was Vincent yeah. Chase's girlfriend in Entourage, uh, worth $3 million. Huh. Net worth $3 million. Uh, Gianna Michaels, who was mentioned earlier in this show, $4 million. Hold on, Google. We got at. Yeah. <laughs> Be careful. Yeah, exactly. I want to get that incognito browser open. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. At number 12, we have the first man on the list, Evan Seinfeld, a.k.a. Spider Jones, uh, $5 million. The next one, two, three, four, we have Jenna Hayes, Lexington Steele, Katie Morgan, and Brie Olson, all uh, having earned $6 million in their careers. Next up, we have a big name, Ron Jeremy. Uh, I think he was on some VH1 show as well. What was that show called? Um, something about love. If some well, some reality show or like like celebrity rehab or something. I don't know what it was. Yeah, called. he actually <laughs> he just got arrested too. Did he? Yeah, some yeah, sexual sexual assault thing and uh, yeah. Man. Well, he's made a lot of money. Uh, seven and a half million dollars. Okay. You got uh, Japanese starlet Maria Takagi, $8 million. And in the top five, you have Jesse Jane with $9 million, Tracy Lords, $10 million. Highest earning male, Peter North, uh, the North Pole, $11 million. Tara Patrick at $15 million. And then, of course, Jenna Jameson at number one, $30 million. Wow. Yeah. So we're going to do a little interesting segment here called By the Numbers. Uh Wait, so Tara Patrick, yeah, is that? Let's go back. So Tara Patrick is the original name of Carmen Electra, and then I guess there's uh, another Tara. No. Oh, there's another Tara. It's a Patrick. different one. Yeah. Okay. Different Tara Patrick, and she was actually married to the guy on the list, Evan Seinfeld, uh, Spider Jones, uh, okay. for about five years as well. Um, anything else on the on the top earners on the stars there? Well, uh, did you? find any information about like i guess the uh, average career span like do people you might not have looked at any of this stuff but i didn't um, um i wonder like how long people decide to like do this lifestyle yeah i mean i think it really varies some people kind of maybe use it as a launching point for other careers i would guess i don't yeah. know um but then you also have, you got to think like there's some that are in the game right now. And obviously there's more money in the industry that these lists will probably look very different in a few years, I think. Yeah. Um, have you looked at how much people get paid for different, like, like the average scene or like how they do that? No. Like if uh, you do one thing, you get more or something like that. Something, <laughs> I didn't yeah, look that up like, either, but uh, that would be interesting to look up for sure. Like Maybe I bet I'm gonna women report back get, on it next week. Yeah. Yeah. Like I would imagine women get paid way more than men. Um, you would think, like although there's probably fewer men, so I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure, uh, but yeah, per scene, maybe, maybe, maybe in total, I don't know, but yeah, per scene, I don't, I'm not sure who the, who gets the heavier, probably the women, I would imagine. Yeah, I would think, and it probably varies. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, so let's look into some like some numbers on habits, right? So we're gonna break this down by second and by day. Mm. Give you a couple fast facts here. So every second, 28,258 users are watching porn. Hmm. I mentioned this earlier, but $3,075 is being spent every second on uh, porn on the internet. And every second, 372 people are typing the word adult into a search engine. <laughs> uh, every day, 37 porn videos are created. 2.5 billion emails containing porn are received. And 68 million search queries related to porn over a quarter of total searches are generated. Wow. 
so then we'll look at so then we'll look at the effect on Americans. About two hundred thousand. Th- that was all in the U.S. as well. About two hundred thousand Americans are classified as porn addicts. I didn't look into what that classification is, but uh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure exactly what, what classifies you as an addict. Uh, Forty million Americans regularly visit porn sites. That seems low to me. Although I guess regularly is the operative word there. Say the the static one more time. Forty million Americans regularly visit porn sites. Yeah, maybe that. Uh, we'll to see what regularly means. Yeah, but I, I, I don't know. Like once a week or something. Yeah, I don't know. But we see where your head is, I guess. <laughs> well, like <laughs> regularly, <laughs> like is that a regular? I guess that's yeah. Is daily? I have no idea. Yeah. Thirty-five percent of all internet downloads are related to porn, and a third of porn viewers are women. I want to touch briefly on uh, Playboy, like we mentioned earlier. Uh, I think this would probably be considered erotica and not porn. So there's more of like an art level to it. You know, high quality photo shoots and all that kind of stuff. Uh, articles, stories, that uh, whatnot in the magazine. So you have Hugh Hefner. I thought this was interesting. He started Playboy in 1953. Uh, he was working as a copywriter for Esquire and asked for a $5 raise and was denied. So <laughs> he left. He took an initial investment of $8,000 to produce the first issue. And the main draw of this first issue were uh, nude photos of Marilyn Monroe. Uh. Sold 54,000 copies, immediately cemented the magazine as an instant hit. Um, he, he, I think he, so he purpose, purposefully tried to keep it sophisticated with, with you know, fiction stories from authors like John Updike and Vladimir Nabokov, juxtaposed with topless centerfolds. Uh, he did notice that you know, the other smut magazines like Hustler and Penthouse were encroaching on their turf. And he thought about diving into more risque uh, pictorials, but decided to keep it classy instead. Uh, Hefner passed away almost three years ago, September of 2017, at home in his Playboy mansion as a rich and I'm assuming happy man. I would I would think. Do, yeah. Do um, I know there's like he's a controversial subject and I think people take, um, you know, different opinions about him uh do you do you think he's like an innovator or do you kind of think he i don't know was maybe like had a little bit more nefarious um desires or something you know i don't know i don't really know a whole lot about him um other than like what's i haven't like dived into that side of him either way. It was just kind of like he, he created this magazine and he lived this life of luxury in this mansion with young, beautiful women around him all the time. And you know, who knows there's obviously some people that are going to say like, well, that's taking advantage of the situation or, or degrading to women. I I, I don't know. I don't know enough about it to make an opinion. I don't think. Well, I think it's a, yeah. Well, I think when he died, everyone was kind of saying like he was taking it, like not everybody, but some people um, would, take the stance that maybe playboy was taking advantage of women but then equally to that i think i'd heard people say like you know it's an empowering thing for women people like right and I, it's always interesting to to see where people fall on both sides of that well like, and, that and like within like the, the like the feminism crowd as well i don't think they can even decide there's some that say it's degrading there's some that say it's empowering you should be able to do whatever you want with your bodies it's right. like the, it's it's uh I don't, it's an argument that is not for me to solve. I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. um, maybe we won't yeah. wade into that. No, nah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I know way too little to talk about that. <laughs> uh, 
I've, I've like read a playboy before. That's about all the experience I have in that situation. Yeah. Um, but that does kind of jump into like the sex working industry, which is another thing. It's like, is, you know, there's a side that says it's super degrading and it's taking advantage. And then there's other side that says it's empowering, you know, do what you want, that kind of thing. And then yeah. there's, so I was just going to bring up, there's a new, new ish, I guess it's four years old, but it's kind of popped up more recently called OnlyFans, where it's like allowing social media, uh, personalities to put content behind a paywall, um, and typically it's like photos and videos. And a lot of the time, you know, there are a lot of pornographic actresses or pornographic models that are on this site, but you see it a lot, especially like in the Twitch community and like a uh, online streaming community. Mm -hmm. Like maybe you stream on Twitch, but uh, obviously they have terms and conditions to where you can't uh, show nudity or anything like that. But these only fans, it's like another source of income for these, for these people. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. I saw that that site had really blown up since quarantine. Um, yes. And I think it was going to blow up anyways. Like I think right. people want to, um, you know, if you have some relationship with the person, even if it's only through social media, but like maybe on that site you can post a comment and that person will actually respond to you. I would imagine that's like a little bit more alluring than um, maybe just going to like a website and typing in something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think so for sure. Uh, the last thing I want to end it on is just that. <laughs> have you ever heard of rule 34? No. What's that? So it's kind of a meme, but it's also very true. Uh, it's the 34th rule of the internet, which states that any object character or media franchise imaginable has porn associated with it. Anything you can think of, there is porn out there for it. Literally anything. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if you were to type in the most, like inconsequential thing and porn and, and rule 34 after it, I guarantee you, you would find something out there. So <laughs> if you're feeling bored, uh, I'm not going to say check out the Reddit page, but uh, if you do, I'm not responsible for any trauma that you suffer and just be careful with what you're searching out there. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a rule list in my head. Pretty funny meme. Yep. Rule 34. Yeah. I'll just check that out. Yeah. So that's a, uh, that's a, that's a quick little dive into porn. I think that was a very PG look at porn I, I well my that. grandmother listens sometimes so that's right we are keeping it clean <laughs> just kidding it's all good michael one thing i learned this week was that uh stevia is a plant yes i didn't know this <laughs> oh yeah it's natural I thought, I thought that like stevia the the sweetener yeah uh well i don't know i thought it was just like a chemical Compound. I was like equal or something. Something, yeah. Your Splenda. Your Splenda. Yeah, no, it's the stevia plant. Yeah, I had. Uh, um, we went to uh, Deep Creek Lake. Uh, shout out to Reed and her family. Reed kind of yeah. grows a whole bunch of herbs and plants and stuff, and she was like, "Oh, this is stevia," and she like rips off a uh, a leaf of it, and I eat it, and I'm like, "Wow, that's like the sweetest thing I've ever tasted." Um, yeah. So. If you ever, yeah, my if mom, you, uh, there's a brand called Truvia, I think, which is uh -huh. like the, a, you know, it's like a packet that you put in like coffee or tea or whatever for yeah. a sweetener. Yeah. And she got a ton of it delivered from Amazon, like 500 packets or whatever. And it smelled, the box just smelled like straight cotton candy. Hmm. Yeah. That's but crazy. Yeah, it's, a, it's a natural, uh, a natural sweetener. Yeah. Well, that's what I learned. Very nice. Um, yeah. One thing I learned this week is that uh, there's a new way to dispose of your dead body after you pass. Actually, it's not new. I just found out about it. Uh, water cremation or alkaline hydrolysis. Have you heard of this? No. 
So instead of being buried or cremated or, you know, cryogenically frozen, like we discussed on another episode, you basically are cremated in water via alkaline hydrolysis. Your body is placed into a pressure vessel that's filled with a mixture of water and potassium hydroxide. And that, that vessel is heated to, a, to 320 degrees Fahrenheit, but because it's pressurized, the water won't boil. And basically in four to six hours, your body is broken down into its chemical components. And the end result is this green brown liquid uh, and then soft porous bone remains that are actually like brittle enough that you can just break them with your hands. Hmm. And they basically, so like you can turn that into the ash, which can be returned to the family for whatever they want to do with it, you know, sprinkling in the ocean or throwing it off a mountain. The liquid is disposed of through a sanitary sewer system. Basically, you're just poured down the drain. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's more eco-friendly. It uses a seventh of the energy as flame cremation. It also helps solve the problem of you know, rapidly dwindling burial space and crowded cemeteries. Uh, and it costs relatively the same as, as uh, flame cremation. Hmm. But I don't think it's legal uh, all over the place yet, which I'm not sure why, but it's not. Yeah, I'd wonder what would be the legal boundary on like maybe maybe it's written in law that like you have to dispose of a body in certain ways. Right. Right. Uh, huh. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Would you ever do that? Sure. Why not? <laughs> I don't care. What, what do I care? I'm, I'm, I'm warm food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, Michael, I think we're gonna have another interesting title of our episode. Tell me what you know about feng shui. Feng shui. Uh. I'm going to guess Chinese. You would be correct. Um, oh, nice. I think it's like well, the way I always hear about it is like, oh, the feng shui in this room is off, which I think is just like the maybe like the balance, like how everything works together in a certain area, maybe to make things. I don't even know where I'm going with this, but yeah, yeah. like uh, just the, the vibe of yeah. a certain place or like maybe not even a place. Maybe it probably comes from something else, like maybe like inner harmony or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, I, I think that's, that's basically pretty smack, like smack on, um, right on. what it is. Yeah. Originated from, uh, ancient, ancient China. It's a practice that's been used for more than 3000 years. Um, and yeah, you're right. It's, it's the practice of using energy forces to harmonize individuals within their surrounding environment. Uh, the oh, term in English literally means wind water. So the translation does not exactly work out. <laughs> no, it doesn't really work exactly. But um, it's sort of, it, it's used to, to do like city organization um, but it's also can be used to like organize your office or like your cubicle or something. So okay. it can be looked at from, you know, many scales, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, the, the goal of feng shui is to situate uh, the human built environment on spots with good chi. Um, uh -huh. Chi is like the imagined form of energy that binds us all together. Um, and... I have a quote from Deepak Chopra. She says, you can't make positive choices for the rest of your life without an environment that makes those choices easy, natural, and enjoyable. So I thought huh. that was a nice way to, to kind of look at it. It's, it's not, it's not really like a superstition. It's not a science. It's, it's certainly a pseudoscience. Um, but it's not like a belief system. It's not, it's none of that. It's just kind of like, simple rules and practices that there are people that certainly 
are better at analyzing rooms or analyzing environments to help you stay like more feng shui but there's not necessarily like one way would be better than another and we'll get into a few like the schools of thought um with it but uh, a couple like one statistic i found that i found interesting was that many asian business people go to great lengths to incorporate feng shui into their corporate environment uh in a survey um that was slightly dated now but it said that 70 percent of taiwanese businesses valued feng shui and each company in the survey spent an average of twenty-seven thousand dollars on feng shui consultations uh designs or construction fees so they're you know giving it enough credence like enough focus yeah. i guess um yeah, absolutely yeah so uh they're really like three main facets of feng shui so there is uh chi as i mentioned is Uh like the 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 binding energy yeah uh there's polarity which could kind of be seen as like yin and yang so you want to have you know balance and then there's something called uh pakwa which is spelled b-a-g-u-a and this is more as it relates to uh the directional um, aspects of things so like either the um the cardinal the compass or in like ancient china they're talking more about like their uh, celestial maps of the way that they used the world they didn't actually have like uh you didn't have compasses but then they figured out compass and magnetism and that kind of changed their their maps but a lot of the same um you know directional coordinates still kind of um ring true and in, in their culture, in the Chinese culture, um, east is related to the azure dragon. And that's like the spring east equinox. In the south, okay. you have the vermilion bird, which is the sol- summer solstice. In the west, you'd have the white tiger. Um, this is the autumn equinox. And in the north, you have the black tortoise, which would be the summer, the winter solstice. And I think there's, there's I didn't go into all of these different things, but there's lore um, surrounding these. Uh, animals and they'll they'll be related with maybe different aspects of things that that you want or you need in your life at a certain time and then you might be able to change your feng shui to align your your body and your activities to get that thing like maybe you'll use the bravery of the azure dragon and something you know um so also related inside of this and this kind of relates to more western feng shui is uh the eight areas so uh, or also the eight mansions i think i've seen it said um but basically the chinese believe there are eight areas of your life that you should be trying to work on essentially um and they are health and family wealth and abundance fame and reputation love and marriage creativity and children which I found interesting they pair those two together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, helpful people and blessings, uh, career and path in life, and spiritual growth and cultivation. Are those in, in order or is that just a list of them? That is just a list of them. I, I don't think that they have a hierarchy for them. Yeah. I could be wrong about that, but it's more that these things need to be in balance for you to be like a happy person. Okay. Um, and, and again, at different times of your life, some of these eight areas will be more important than others. Gotcha. 
Um, so as I, I kind of mentioned this, but feng shui sort of breaks down into two, two, two practices with, with kind of subcategories inside of them. So uh, the first is traditional feng shui, and then there is Western feng shui, or I'd also seen it written with uh, the acronym B- BTB. So Western feng shui and traditional feng shui. In traditional feng shui, there are two branches. There's the form branch and there's the compass branch. The form branch is the oldest versions of feng shui. And these principles are more related to ways to arrange um, your city or town, your village. Um, and the principles could could be taken to figure out where, where should we put tomb sites, the grave sites. Um, all of these things that I kind of mentioned, it's like using chi, using energy to position things correctly so that you can put yourself in places with good chi. So um, burial sites have their own uh, relationship with chi. I think if it's your burial sites, that could be a source of really good chi, like your ancestors. Um, So you want to place those in places that you might have more respect or, you know, you can put them in you might have homes in a different place um they also factor in um basically like their version of like the four elements they have five elements and they also have five celestial animals so their five elements are wood fire earth metal and water and again i think it matters by like who's the analyzer like who's who are you coming to and asking about how you should arrange your village or house to be in feng shui. So it kind of matters like their perspectives on things, but they might say, you know, having a kitchen right next to where you sleep, maybe that's not good. Like you're, you're mixing fire and, and water that you need to be, then you need to separate these things more. I feel like I need a giant, like uh, just a graphic like chart or map for all this stuff. It, it took me a little while to like kind of wrap my head around exactly what they're saying. Um, yeah. But when I get to the Western feng shui, I think they've really dumbed it down <laughs> uh, uh, and made it uh, yeah, a lot easier. Um, Good and bad. Yeah. And then, I mean, there are other aspects of the, the form branch that kind of make sense. Like you want to look at the way that the, the, the topography of where you are makes sense. So you want to have... Uh, it analyzes the shape of land and flow of the wind and water through it to find ideal chi. And I guess chi can like leak out. Like your energy can leak if, if it's like too harsh of an edge or too harsh of a turn or something like that. Um, so there's a lot of considerations. Um, I mentioned form branch. There's the compass branch that kind of brings in the more the, the eight cardinal directions north north south east west northwest southwest southeast southwest you know northwest all the different ones um and kind of uh have a different perspective factoring in the the compass um western feng shui is just is much easier to kind of understand um it factors in the eight areas of your life and then adds a ninth um to be like a yin yang point. So the idea is that this is called the aspirations method. So it, it incorporates dividing up your house into into nine grids or like nine nine equal squares to, to form a grid. 
and uh, you put in those into those squares uh, different aspects of things that you want for these eight areas, like the health and family, wealth and abundance, fame and reputation, etc. Each square is associated with something you want out of out of life in those squares. So you want to make sure that whatever you design and put in those rooms is aligned with that activity or desire. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, with the ninth square being, you know, the yin yang point where you want to have balance and, and maybe it mixes a bunch of these things together um, to kind of, you know, to balance it out, I guess. Um, color also factors in um, and they have color guides to use uh, a lot of feng shui like they like a lot of like big bright colors uh, to help like shape and guide your energy um, and they also kind of associate with the five elements of of wood water metal. so 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 you know in your kitchen you might be you might have the fire so you want to have red or orange or purple some of these colors that are more like passionate um Whereas in other places, you might have more earth colors, like a nourishment, like a light yellow or a beige, something like that. Um, do, do you buy into any of this stuff? Like as I'm talking about it, like is this sort of like, oh, this is so stupid or or do you kind of like maybe intuitively feel these things, but don't think about yeah. it? I mean, I definitely don't think about it in near as much detail or break it down as much as all this, obviously, but... Uh, I do think that like the way things are, I mean, this is probably super dumbed down, but for like the way things are arranged definitely has an effect on like the vibe of the atmosphere. I think totally, <laughs> not, totally. not to like bro, bro it up too much with <laughs> <laughs> the vibes all off. Man. Uh, that's horrible here. So it's just like, Oh man, we're not facing the ocean. That's right. So, so you don't put, you don't put a couch in front of a, you know, a, a, a sliding glass door. Yeah, yeah. That's a fire hazard as well. <laughs> no, I, I think I think you're totally right there. Like, I think intuitively, I know when a room kind of sucks. Like, yeah. uh, <laughs> and then I might find out later that you know it has zero feng shui principles incorporated. That being said, yeah. my apartment is like the antithesis of feng shui. It is a fucking just clusterfuck. <laughs> pardon my language. It is, but it's just too small. Yeah. And now I have all, you know I have all my work stuff there. It's just like. Definitely bad vibes. <laughs> well, let's get into. Uh, yeah, that's actually a good point. A lot of people having to move their offices to their home. Like I'm sure yeah, a lot of people. I mean, are I'm, very in a, I'm in a small one bedroom. Way. Yeah, I'm in a small one bedroom. No, like office or like separate. You know, even like dining nook, to where yeah. it's just like every single day I'm looking at monitors and laptops. Even when they're closed, it's just you can't escape it. Yeah, yeah, it's always looking at you. So it's been nice being home and having more space to move around and kind of turn off yeah well um there's one aspect that i i wanted to look into and I'll, I'll tell you how you should align your bed okay okay all right so uh you need to analyze the position of the door in the room okay and you want your bed to be as far away from the door as possible uh-huh so and then and then the second aspect of aligning your bed should look at the cardinal directions of, of how your house is aligned on the, the okay. compass. So uh, good alignment 
um, can be found in these five different, or excuse me, four different directions, west, east, southeast, and southwest. So, so when you're in... That's foot of the bed, foot of the bed facing that direction? Uh, correct. Correct. Like if you were to, you know, lean up in bed, which direction are you facing? Yes. Uh, so when you face your bed west, you create the best conditions for a good night's sleep. West is contentment. However, contentment can also bring like laziness and low motivation. So if you're starting like a new career or you're doing something where like you need to be kind of like fired up, West might not be the best way to do it. But if maybe you're in a good career and you're just sort of like trying to, you know, keep chugging along, West might be a good, good option for you. Okay. Uh, if you face your bed East, um, this will make you feel that every day is a new day. Uh, if you're young, just starting out, this is the perfect way to sleep. Uh, this brings out any person's feelings of ambition and growth um, and can like, help you grow your career. Uh, if you go southeast, this is for people who have trouble communicating. Uh, it promotes good communication um, and a little bit more creativity. Uh, southwest is for people who are restless. So this will help calm you down, help get you to sleep. Uh, it'll make you feel a little bit more settled in your life or your relationship. Uh, you want to avoid three different directions. You want to okay. avoid looking in the north. Mm-hmm. Uh, this can increase uh, like some more sleep disorders or insomnia. It can make you feel lethargic. Um, this position is actually called the death position. So if you're an older person, you might point this like, point the point in that direction because um, <laughs> it, it can help like promote some calmness and tranquility, but maybe when you're like kind of winding down in life. Um, yeah. Northeast can give you nightmares, uh, brings out strong emotions. Uh, and South can be bad for sleep. It's uh, the energy surrounding South is, is, is bad, bad energy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is there, have there been studies on this or is this just, uh, this is, this is something I just pulled from. Yeah. From, I, yeah. I, I don't know if like somebody's they're like, I want you to point your bed in this direction for a year and see if it changes yeah. in your life. But I think there has to be some element of like placebo here, right? Like, for sure. Like, and a lot of objectivity or subjectivity, I think, as well. Totally. And also some houses you like, like supposedly the the door position will trump, um, you know, this alignment. The alignment. Yeah. yeah. So you, you definitely don't want to like put your bed right next to the door. Um, well, all the all the beds in this house are either pointing west or southwest-ish. Oh, well, you, you should maybe, southwest is good. That's good to South, calm you down. Yes. And I think there are, like, it does get pretty um, detailed with the exact positioning. Um, this kind of actually is a good move to um, my next topic here, like some notable feng shui stories. Like, So Disney, when they were opening up Disneyland in Hong Kong, consulted a feng shui master. They actually shifted the entrance of their park 12 degrees, and they they decided they were going to add a bend in the walkway from the train station to the gate. Uh, I guess this bend doesn't allow chi to escape. It keeps it in. Gotcha. Um, but there have been some other, like like Virgin Airlines has incorporated a lot of uh, feng shui, Bill Gates, Bill Clinton, uh, Coca-Cola, Oprah Winfrey, 
Um, and even the White House has incorporated elements of feng shui in their design. Huh. Yeah. Pretty cool. Pretty interesting stuff. It's definitely more to it than just the feng shui is off in here, man. Feng shui is off. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, there's a lot you can look into to say, oh, it's off because, but I think, I think generally people understand that rooms have bad layouts and, and that layout is basically just like messing with the vibe, messing with the chi. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Interesting. Very good. Excellent. That's it for this week's episode. Make sure to like and subscribe if you enjoyed it. You can follow us on Instagram at TMWYK underscore podcast and on Twitter at TMWYK pod. Have a great weekend and we'll see all you beautiful people for a new episode next Friday.